next scary movie. Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Welcome back to the Jumping Scared Podcast. My name's Eric, and I am not joined by my twin brother, Alex, because I am here for a solo Stumbling Scared episode. And I know what you may be thinking to yourself, Jumping Scared? I thought that podcast died. Uh, And honestly, at various points over the last two years, both Alex and myself uh, probably thought the same thing. But we are back, and uh, we are here to get back on the horse, if you will. Um, which is honestly a kind of stupid saying. Um, At the best, you are riding horses for efficiency, like in the old time sakes, to get across ground faster. But now it's like reserved for amateurs who like probably don't treat horses super well when they're riding them, or corny people who do dressage, dressage, that dumbass Olympic sport where the horse does all the work and somehow the rider's rewarded. Um, Don't ride horses. Just treat them well. Let them be free range. They're big animals, majestic. Uh, don't ride horses. Um, but um, we will use that expression still because we are back on the horse today for a horror review. And uh, based on when this episode comes out, you may not know it, but it is Friday the 13th. And uh, one of the earlier podcasts that we had was me reacting to watching the original Friday the 13th on a Stumbling Scared episode, so I thought I would bring that concept back and watch and react and describe Friday the 13th Part 2. I very, very many times on this podcast I have brought up my affinity towards this um, series of movies, Um, and honestly, Part 1 and Part 2 are both great for their own original reasons. So this unfortunately probably won't be a terribly long episode. I'm trying to learn from the mistakes of my past. Um, I honestly, to get a feel for this, I won't even recommend watching the original episode where I detailed the uh, original Friday the 13th episode. Um, I made it a little too long. I drank maybe a little bit too much and I kept on losing my place and it was kind of an incoherent blob and mess of a podcast. So um, suffice it to say, just go ahead and go back and rewatch part one and part two and then gear up for this podcast that's going to be my recommendation so uh to give you a quick refresher though um first movie came out 1980 the sequel came out 1981 i think they saw the success of the original wanted to capitalize on that instantly uh coming out just one year after the original Uh, but an important note is that the actual um setting of it is five years after the original quote-unquote massacre the one thing that really makes this series stand out for me is their use of music. Um, They use these really cool cutting slashes and like staccato high and low notes at the same time. I've tried to describe it in the last podcast. It's like a once again, it's terrible. Um, if you just go ahead and Google Friday the 13th music, you'll know what I'm, exactly what I'm saying. It's so ominous. It sets up for a ton of different scenes. You can do basically anything you want with it. Um, the opening of Friday the 13th Part 2 juxtaposes that really cool sound with a little kid singing the Itsy Bitsy Spider. Um, and if anything, um, especially like Stephen King reworks in the late 20-teens, Um, have shown you uh, if you do kids singing child songs in unnaturally spooky settings 
that is a recipe for being very spooky in and of itself. Uh, a lot of people think the second movie is better than the original, but I disagree. Uh, they're formatted in a very similar way, um, but I think uh, the whole rationale for why the first movie exists, as opposed to the second movie existing, makes more sense and is a little bit more spooky. Uh, so the original is obviously all about a scorned mother who is out for vengeance, which um, doesn't necessarily feel real, but it's human, if you will. Um, Jason is obviously a super cool villain, but him being the monster he is is a completely different realm of scary. On the one hand, you have a situation where a mother has been so upset by the death of her child that she seeks vengeance, and on this hand, you have that same child who has been reborn into a cold-blooded killer. So obviously both very cool, but in my preference, I still do prefer the first iteration. One big highlight right off the bat for the sequel is they spend about the first 10 minutes recapping the original. Um, I think it's a very good thing to do, very smart thing to do, and honestly, uh, it can even be one of the better parts of the movie. Uh, we just saw A Quiet Place 2 in theater a couple months ago, and unfortunately, uh, it wasn't a bad movie, but the recap and like the, uh, or the prologue of that movie was by far the best, and that was the scenes that took place before A Quiet Place 1 <laughs> even started. So that's a good note to people. If you want to do something cool for a sequel, start by either going back in time and revisiting stuff, or going back even further and setting up uh, your new movie, as well as giving a little bit of um, more interesting depth to your original movie. All right, so now we're going to set the scene. A bunch of young kids are trying to find their way to camp. Um, where have I seen this before? And again, obviously, you can't make it easy. These dumb kids didn't think to pack a map, uh, and they didn't think to know exactly where they were going to. So they get stuck in this same two-horse town, and um, they find out that there is a kook, um, a little kooky guy who is screaming about camp blood and warning people about don't go near camp blood. The whole town dismisses them, let alone all of the kids dismissing him, so he becomes kind of an afterthought, but he will pop up in the movie here a little bit later. Uh, one thing, uh, so obviously the kids find their way to camp, but you have to make it a, tr a struggle at first. Um, once they get to camp, or as they're getting to camp, I should say, um, this movie immediately takes advantage of the filming through the eyes of an unknown person. Um, so in the first movie, most of this was done through the person of Mrs. Voorhees. So in this movie, we don't know, technically, who we're seeing through the eyes of. We obviously assume it's Jason, but... Um, this movie does a good job of not only using this tactic for Jason, but using it for a sheriff and using it for other camp counselors who are just trying to spook and get the better hand of some of their uh, friends. So this plays off that really well. A lot of the times you think you're looking through the eyes of the monster, but oftentimes it is just a um, innocent bystander who is trying to live their life. Immediately when we get to the camp, we see a kind of downtrodden sign for Camp Crystal Lake, um, which the part of the kids automatically refer to as Camp Blood. And it sounds like half of the camp counselors know about this tragedy that happened five years ago, whereas the other half don't. Um, I don't know how you could possibly sign up to be a counselor at a camp in this remote-ass town and not know that literally, like, 
it's less than a half mile away, uh, your campground from Camp Crystal Lake. So I don't know how you could possibly get away with not knowing that that massacre had taken place a mere five years ago, but that's besides the point. It's probably due to the lackadaisical nature of parenting in the 1980s and 1990s. You could, kids could go anywhere. They could bike 30 miles if they wanted to, as long as they're home for supper. Everything's Gucci. All right. Uh, one thing I noticed um, as we were getting in, maybe like 20 minutes into the movie, uh, this franchise and the Anaconda franchise are basically one and the same. You've got this territorial beast taking out disrespectful people who are encroaching on their territory. Uh, it's like Anaconda and Anacondas 2. It's basically the same exact thing. You've got these people who are actually... Anaconda, I guess, makes a little bit more sense because they're after something that'll give them uh, immense monetary gain. But this is just kids who are like, oh yeah, nah, it's, it's I'll, I'll, I'll do a camp counselor when there was a massacre only a half mile down the road. It's like the housing market nowadays. It's so hot. You have to make so many concessions as to far as what you'll actually do just to get a minimum wage job. It's sad. It shouldn't have been like that in the 1980s. It should have been a great economy. It should have been um, no limitation on any type of jobs these kids would have want. But unfortunately, that's the situation they found themselves in. So 24 minutes in, and we were around a campfire, which is good. This is the kind of scenes you want. And our head honcho camp counselor basically gives a full-blown bibliography on the carnage Jason has caused. Uh, this obviously automatically fills in the people who didn't know what they signed up for. And to top it all off, as he is making his final um, notations, uh, he has one of his friends pop out in this little bear mask and with an axe just to scare people, um, which is... Uh, I understand, okay, we're speaking in the realm of the real world where obviously um, monsters don't exist. So if we're looking at it through that lens, sure, you can poke fun at this. But obviously you can't view a movie as having the same real world interpretations of how things exist and what things can exist. So the fact that there was this big massacre, I I don't think it's necessary, smart, or even... Um, any semblance of a good idea to poke those demons. Like maybe just keep that in the back of your mind. You want to sign up for this camp, just do camp. Don't have to push your push the envelope. Don't have to push the buttons of any uh, immortal beast that may be out in those woods. Like just like count your blessings. Like just get through the summer and get out of there. I don't know why you're trying to get fancy with it and get cheeky with it. Just like chill, just chill. Uh, also, one pet peeve I have in movies like this are they, it oftentimes happens where there are scenes of specific games or events that have very specific rules. And if you're not like a, per, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? If you're not involved in one of these specific games or events, it, this scene would not cause you any issues. But this scene happens to be a chess scene, and I quite like chess. And uh, there is a scene where maybe four pieces have been captured. It is a fairly loaded board. And a boy puts a girl in check with his knight. And he says, I think you're in trouble. Check. She has a lateral queen move to take the knight and put him in checkmate with basically every piece on the board. Um, I would pay top dollar if a uh, GM could analyze this for us, because I have no idea how this position could, one, exist, or two, um, get to the point where it possibly could end up that way. 
Um, so I watch a lot of chess content. If somebody uh, has seen that movie or wants to watch this movie just to review that scene, I would uh, greatly appreciate it. I can give you a um, Amazon Prime sub on Twitch. So everybody listening to this chat who's a chess content creator, I think you should get on it. Okay, so coming back, uh, I really early introduced the kook, the local crazy person who everybody dismissed. Unfortunately, uh, he is doing his thing, trotting around camp, being kind of a general weirdo, kind of a kooky guy. Uh, unfortunately, he becomes our first victim. He gets a razor wire pulled around his neck while he's standing next to a tree. Uh, there's a figure behind him pulling on that razor wire surrounding it around the tree so he's got his neck tied to the trunk and he goes down for the count unfortunate because characters like that are often a good source of um, comedic relief um, and uh, kind of like a red herring as far as who's causing the trouble in the camp we didn't even, we didn't even get a chance for this guy to be kooky he was had like two lines where it clearly established he was a kook but i want to see that fleshed out let's see a little bit more uh, a little bit um of some juvenile stuff and let's see the kids get a little creeped out by this guy so that way we've got some semblance of a could it be this guy could it be jason who's it this way who's it that way but unfortunately now he is down for the count very early one thing i feel compelled to talk about is so obviously we are in a camp setting there's a lot of woods there's a lot of dirt there's a lot of um, weeds there's a lot of trees and it's even mentioned there is a lot of poison ivy um, I unfortunately have been, um, I have succumbed to poison ivy pretty badly multiple times and it's, I don't know why, anytime I see a movie or a TV show where people are traversing through woods, I can't help but be glued to the background looking for this goddamn three-leafed menace. I just, I look for it because I am so... I have so much PTSD. I, 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 don't, I got it bad. I got it on my face, my arms, my legs, my eyes swelled up. My knees looked like they were not my knees. They were puffy. They were inflamed. They were blistered. It's just, it's not a good sign. And so now I'm just so PTSD'd. Uh, it's just, I have to look for it. And one thing that makes me think of Poison Ivy should 100% be the scariest Batman villain. 100%. If she can cause you to have those kind of outbreaks, that is torture so not only is she powerful smart conniving but she can give you blisters and rashes that are itchy and that no creams can seemingly uh, quell it's just she's good let's see the poison ivy movie i know she's been a quote-unquote side villain let's see the poison ivy 100 percent main villain movie okay sorry back to the back to the um back to the feature so we've got Tweedledee and Tweedledum. You can tell from the onset that these are our resident uh, doofuses. It's a boy and a girl who are uh, sexually involved, which will come up over and over again, um, which makes sense. It's the reason Jason exists in his current form is because there were camp counselors who were supposed to be watching him who were uh, allegedly fornicating, and he drowned in the lake. So sexual tension is going to be a huge trope in this movie. Um, but these two um, decide that they are going to go investigate Camp Blood because they think their city folk friends will think they're really cool if they come back and say, I was at that camp. Well, they try to, and it seems like Jason is tracking him down, but just when he grabs their shoulder, it is somehow a police sheriff in the middle of the camp who is just like automatically posted there. 
five years after this event. I'm sorry, this is a small town and I am not buying that. Um, obviously it makes good for a movie because it tells you a lot more about how much he cares about the area and all oh, you guys have to know, our town is still recovering from this, how can you be so disrespectful? Um, and to that, uh, the main camp counselor says, okay, we'll make sure they don't get seconds of dessert. So obviously these kids have no respect for the sheriff. They've got no respect for the area they've in. They've got no respect for Jason as a threat. They've got no respect at all. They're just lawless kids living life to the fullest debauchery uh, they can. And uh, honestly, it's the classic 80s kids group just trying to get by having sex, doing drugs, signing up for camp counselor jobs, but never actually being a camp counselor. Pretty popular thing to do. One really dope thing that this movie has that the original doesn't, so I need to give this movie kudos for, is that Jason has like a dedicated den. It's this ragtag aluminum slash wood slash cardboard shack. It's dilapidated as fuck and absolutely screams boy who drowned who loves killing kids lives here vibes. And it's just, we, we see it a couple times and the only times we see it, shit goes down. Um, we've got a scene with um, arguably the most attractive girl. She um, does a Jaws-esque skinny dipping scene, like basically the exact same thing as Jaws, you were picture for picture. Uh, and when she comes back, obviously one of the other camp counselors had taken her clothes. And unfortunately, he is the first actual kid to get murdered as he's running away with her clothes. He gets stuck in a hunting trap if you will. And he gets tied upside down. She catches up to him and uh, she goes to help him get a knife to cut him down. And Jason beats her to the punch and slits this dude's throat. Um, I had made I had made a note at this point. I've already talked about it. There is just an unbelievable amount of sexual tension. If there isn't um, a group of teenagers trying to have sex or having sex, they are talking about having sex. It is just absolutely wild. But once again, it makes sense. This is the whole point of why Jason exists. So it comes with the territory. They are using this trope to the max, though, 100%. Um, so that first camp counselor who died was a full 45 minutes into the movie. And it's only like a 80-minute movie. So you can really appreciate how much of a slow burn it is to this point. Uh, and that's important. What you're doing with this movie is you're not, you're not senselessly killing these kids. You're establishing a little bit of rapport. You're establishing a little bit of humility and humanity. I mean, I've talked shit on them a lot, but at the end of the day, they're just kids. Uh, so waiting 45 minutes before a single one dies, what that allows the viewer to do is get involved and interested in the camp lifestyle they've got set up. And then it also allows the second half of the movie to be bang, 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 super fast, super interesting, and a very wild ride. Uh, I also haven't mentioned him yet, but there is a camp counselor in a wheelchair who has got the absolute most rotten luck of anybody in this film. Uh, he gets within moments of getting down with the baddest girl counselor. He gets dis disrespected by half of the boys just because he's in a wheelchair. He unfortunately has to be in a wheelchair in this camp setting. I mean, imagine going over those roots and rocks and sticks and leaves. It's just, it's just a nightmare. Your arms will be tired all day. Uh, and honestly, he just deserved better. He's a nice guy, good-looking dude. Uh, he was arguably one of the kids um, who probably had the brightest future. And um, spoiler alert, he gets God. 
I think my favorite part of the original and of this movie is the utter lack of coordination between the kids. Jason is so good at just isoling these little shits. I call him James Harden. You might not love it as a viewer, but goddamn, his stats look good. And another great part of this movie is knowing what they can and can't accomplish visually. And this is from the filming perspective. Um, They're very realistic about, hey, if we try to do this kill and show it to the max, it's going to look pretty corny. So instead, what they do is they start the kill scenes and then we'll maybe pan to a face or pan to a shadow and use lighting super well where you can um, imagine what's going on. And uh, one of my favorite things about horror movies, movies in general is what the directors and what the filmographers leave up to the imagination and interpretation of the uh, viewer. Because nothing is as scary as what your mind can come up with. Because everybody has their own quirks, their own um, individual um, life that's brought them there, and has the things they can fill, they can fill in the um, blanks to exactly what will be the creepiest for them. So this movie does that in a very good way. They do not um, show anything that's corny. They do good, clean, crisp kill scenes and whatever they can't actually show due to lack of budget or lack of um, CGI, they let uh, the viewer's imagination fill in the blanks for. So most of the time, while the less important counselors were getting torn to pieces, picked off one by one, Uh, Mama Bear and Papa Bear Counselor, uh, the head honchos, were at a bar and they finally just returned to camp. And honestly, them putting the pieces together as to what is going on is absolutely hilarious. They have no understanding or concern whatsoever. Like at one point they're investigating and they run across a completely blood-soaked mattress. And they're like, oh, I don't know, it might be a joke. They see... um, the main cabin is a complete mess all the lights are on nobody's there they're just like ah i don't know maybe they went to their bunks and uh it's just it's classic it's 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 classic 1980s complete lack of understanding and honestly with the lack of respect they were giving their situation in the beginning it kind of does actually make sense that they wouldn't they would feel pretty lackadaisical now Um, One of the best parts of the original film is the final girl situation when Miss Voorhees is introduced. So uh, in my mind, nailing this part of the movie and this scene with the final girl is paramount to the success of part two. And honestly, they do a good job. How this ends up playing out is it's a long chase through the woods, but, but guess where we end up? At Jason's motherfucking den. This absolute unit has a full-blown shrine to his mom, like with her skull and a lot of her belongings in her, the room, one of the rooms of his den. Once you see that, you know it's GG no re. Hang it up. No survivors. You are donezo. But our main character, our main girl who has made it to the den, she actually wins the fight with Jason. Hits him with a one-two straight to the dome, knocks him out, and he is gone. Her boo somehow is alive and like staggers up to the cabin himself, and they walk away together. Until Jason literally bursts through the fucking wall and fucks her up again. This is like a complete homage to the original when Jason pulls the girl off the canoe. Uh, he straight up busts through the wall of it. I mean, I, I did tell you earlier that his, his den was kind of uh, dilapidated. So, uh, yeah, he uh, straight up takes advantage of that, goes through the wall, grabs her, 
and then boom, cuts to the daylight, and she is getting taken away in an ambulance. Her boo is nowhere to be found, and Jason wins again. And so spawns one of the more prolific series in horror history, Friday the 13th. Uh, So there's obviously positive nuggets in the later movies, but in my opinion, none of them top either the original or part two. It's just too hard to do. Um, So with that being said, uh, me and Alex actually do have a decent amount planned here that we're excited to come back and continue to do our podcast with. Uh, One of those plans is to do a review of the three-part Fear Street series, uh, which has been popular on Netflix lately. It's based on an R.L. Stein series, if any of you guys read that when you were kids. If not, it's just a fun homage to like the 80s and 90s style slasher, um, and we'll be doing that pretty soon. And we also have plans for a series that um, we've been talking about doing for probably two years now. And it's a series where we make a case for the greatest of all time horror movie. Uh, What we want to do there is take an in-depth look at the consensus best horror movies of all time and talk about what makes them great and why they deserve to be the title of greatest horror movie of all time. Uh, We've got more plans for recent reviews. We want to do some more 2021 movies. And honestly, just get back to the grind of producing podcasts because uh, we love it. It gets us to keep watching new and interesting stuff. It gets us to revisit some old stuff that we love. And uh, it's just a fun thing to do. So with that being said, I'm Eric, and this has been an episode of Stumbling Scared. Until next time, space stay... Oh, God, I made it this long, and I stuttered on the end. Okay, let's try that again. With that being said, I'm Eric, and this has been an episode of Stumbling Scared. Until next time, stay spooky, friends. Thanks for tuning in to the Jumping Scared Podcast. Have any questions, comments, just want to share your horror movie opinion with us? Feel free to reach us at jumpingscared at gmail.com. See you next episode.